So Luke 22, verse 1 to 23. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, and make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you that I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on this table. The Son of Man will go um, as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of it that it might be who would do this. As we move on in the series of Luke, which we're exploring at the moment, we've come to Luke chapter 22 in the lead up to Easter especially. I'm going to walk through Luke 22 uh, before Easter and then go through Luke 23, 24 um, during Easter and then the week after and finish on the road to Emmaus uh, a few weeks after that. But you know, um, if you've been following along with the news and what's happening, you've noticed recently in where we are in the world at the moment, many of our best laid plans haven't gone as smoothly as we'd hoped. If you know of the Gospel Coalition in Australia, they've, their Easter campaign this year is called Jesus, History's Biggest Hoax, question mark. And it's an interesting, it's an intriguing idea, thought-provoking, it's wanting you to click and then to go to their website and watch the video, asking, is Jesus the biggest hoax? Well, unfortunately, a number of pastors have um, got a bit upset by this because it sounds like it's just fueling the atheistic debate that Jesus is a hoax. And they say it's not very positive spin, where we should focus on the, the, it's negative, we should focus on the positive. So this great campaign has been met with a bit of backlash. The world laid plans of the Gospel Coalition here didn't quite happen as smoothly as some of them would have hoped. Do check it out though, it's a great video they've put together. Uh, even in our country, the vaccine rollout started and um, 
the great plans of many wonderful healthcare professionals and, and our government, well, they got a bit inundated this week, didn't they? Because the, the, a lot of GPs did not realise that today was the day they can take bookings for the vaccine. The best laid plans didn't quite go as smoothly as a bit of paper in ScoMo's hand there. The first game of footy at Adelaide Oval didn't go to plan because there were some ticketing issues and seating issues and the players were on the phone all week telling telling people, don't worry, it's going to go to plan, we're fixing it, it's all okay. And then in a sheer change of events, no one would have expected Adelaide actually won 103 to 91. The odds were so stacked against them, no one would have planned they would have won. Not even them, I'm sure. But Sharon just put her hands up in joy before and Naomi as well. Adelaide did win. You know, back in November 13, 2006, I made a plan. A very good plan. And my plan went exactly to plan. I proposed to Natasha, and she said yes. Today's talk is called The Plan. The question is, does Jesus have a plan? We've seen him make some really big claims the last few weeks in Luke's Gospel. Just consider uh, big claims to lost people like Zacchaeus. Claims to rich people who thought they could get into the kingdom of God with their wealth. Claims about expecting his return. Claims about praying to God. Claims about paying taxes and honouring God at the same time. Jesus is making some really big claims. And today, we're confronted with the, the real possibility that maybe the plan that Jesus is working to is not going to plan after all. After all, Satan becomes highly active in this passage. We haven't seen him like this since Luke chapter 4, which results in one of Jesus' own disciples betraying him. Does Jesus have a plan? Does God have a plan? And the big idea, of course, is that yes, God has a plan. He always has. Now, if you read our passage before us, you may have noticed in the Bible reading there's some time references. It says in verse 1, now... Verse 7, then, verse 14, when, and verse 17, after. All of those are progressing along to the high point and big idea where Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. The big idea is that, yes, God has a plan. The plan is that Jesus will restore us back to God through a new covenant with his blood. And the point is that the betrayal of Jesus sits in and under this plan. Because Jesus isn't surprised. His plan takes this betrayal into account and uses the evil directed at him to fulfill God's good plan and purpose for him and for us. God's plans always work like he intends, just like my proposal did. So explore with me today. Is this really the big idea? Does God actually have a plan? Does Jesus really have one in what he's doing? Because it does look a bit like it's gone off track. And hopefully you'll agree with me that yes, actually, God is in control. God has a plan. And it's all about this new covenant in Jesus and his blood. But the first thing, obviously, we just need to define our terms is what's this idea of covenant? What is a covenant? And if you've been in church for a while, you might know. But just as a refresher for everyone here, it simply means a partnership or agreement There are marriage covenants, 
to seek the welfare of the other person. We, we have them. There are peace treaty covenants in which one nation will work out the differences with another, they'll stop fighting, and they'll work together. In the Bible, we see lots of covenants, and they actually hold the Bible together. God makes covenants to work out His plans in the world with human partners. And you just have to stop right there from a moment and consider, God makes a covenant with us. He doesn't need to, in some sense, but He chooses to. Why would God even do that? The simple answer, I think, is that God is all about sharing Himself with humanity. And the way for that to happen is through covenants. And we see that from Genesis all the way through to this new covenant that Jesus makes. So three parts to look through. Uh, We have the plan of destruction, we'll look at first. Then we have this plan of salvation, and then what it means to trust God's plan today. So the plan of destruction, plan of salvation, what does it mean to trust in God's plan today as well? So let's begin in the first six verses. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, called Passover, was approaching, verse 1. And the chief priests and teachers were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Again, to find the terms, Passover is a Jewish festival celebrating God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt through the plagues. The final plague was the death of the firstborn in every family, which could be avoided only by killing a lamb in the firstborn's place so that God's judgment would pass over them and that household. And this was the beginning, so to speak, of the nation of Israel. It was a huge moment. It became the first day of their calendar. It was the first day of their, the rest of their life. And Jesus says it's Passover time when they remember this. Because what Passover celebrates and has done for all these years, Jesus will actually perform, you see. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And to get here to that, the truth of that verse in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus must be killed like the lamb was every year at the festival. But it won't do for Jesus to just stand up and say, kill me. It's not how God works. It's not the pattern or character of God. You see, Jesus' death, as much as it's necessary, and he knows that, it sits in the framework of humanity's rebellion from God called sin. What's going to happen in a moment is this high-definition picture of humanity rejecting God, like we always do. God doesn't just allow himself to die, but he gets carried along willingly with the human evil and rebellion, all as part of his plan, you see. We see this in the the first uh, few verses we've read. The idea of getting rid of is a violent execution. They want to get rid of Jesus... The problem is they can't do it because they have no opportunity. Their plan won't happen. They'll have no chance to arrest Jesus because too many people are going to make too much of a disturbance. Their plan isn't happening. So when the best human plans don't work, in this instance, Satan steps in to influence the scene even more. We see that in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officials and the temple guards and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted. They agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over when no crowd was present. 
at this moment, for Jesus, his circle of friends is disintegrating. First with Judas, Peter will soon deny him, and every one of them is going to run away. It's the first time we've seen Satan active in Luke's gospel since the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4. Back then, Satan was enticing Jesus to stop his ministry. Now, Satan's threatening to kill Jesus to stop what he's doing. And it's really familiar language of Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? When Satan wants to strike his heel because he knows that Jesus is the Son of God and he needs to use Judas to influence the scene to betray him, to kill him. But before we go on, we have to pause for a minute because it says that Satan entered Judas. That's a big claim. That's a strange thing. Perhaps it's better not to think of it as being possessed. That's a very unfortunate word to think of. He entered him, but he didn't overcome him. Judas is still responsible, and Satan isn't an excuse for the evil which Judas is about to do. You read, it says, when Satan entered Judas, it gives us six behaviors that Judas did and attributing to Judas, normal behaviors. It says he went, he discussed, he might betray, he consented, he watched, and then to hand. Six normal things that you would do, with an evil intent, of course, but they're attributed to Judas, not Satan. The point is that he wasn't forced. He did exactly what he wanted to do. And the goal of entering was to betray Jesus too, by the way. Moreover, the chief priests never saw Satan in this. None of this is obviously satanic, right? The point is that this is just consistent with Satan's character. As he tricked Adam and Eve to betray God, so now he uses Judas to betray God too. Yet, God's plan sits in and above and over this. There's a great parallel to Genesis 50, verse 20. It says, talking of Joseph, and when his brothers betrayed him, he says, brothers, you intended harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Genesis 50, verse 20. You could paraphrase that right here and say what Satan, Judas, the chief priest, meant for evil, God means for good for the saving of many lives as well. Because you see, in truth, both God and Satan wanted to kill Jesus. Satan to stop him. God to renew, revive, and forgive humanity. It's chaotic. It is an absolutely chaotic scene to read. Satan wants to do evil. He's involved in Judas to make that happen. But contrast this. God knows what's going on and uses it for his own benefit. This is the plan of salvation for the rest of the passage. We read from verse 7 to 13, a very similar scene to the donkey scene when Jesus comes in. He says, guys, you know, find the donkey, it's here. Ask the, if they say, what do you need? The, the, the Lord needs it. Similar thing. Go in, make preparations for the Passover. Go to the house down here. The person will say to you, uh, what do you need? Oh, I need to go upstairs, make preparations. It'll happen. Uh, on it goes. And they, it says they, they found everything as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. <laughs> you know, Jesus isn't stressed by this whole thing. He's not reactive here. He's proactive. He's in control. When chaos and evil are reigning, Jesus presses on with his plan from the beginning. Calm, steady presence and plan of God is moving towards its goal, 
Even if everything else seems chaotic, Jesus is plodding forward. And then in verse 14, when the hour came, they reclined at the table. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. When the hour came, everything was pointing to this very moment. The Passover meal. It says he eagerly desired it too because he's deliberately linking Passover and himself. What's more, the nature of God's kingdom is a meal. A meal with Jesus. He says, I won't drink, eat this again or drink this again until I come into the kingdom of God. The point is it's future-looking. God's kingdom does not end because evil reigns. Actually, God's kingdom continues forever, dealing with evil, so he can reign. And then he takes the cup in verse 17, as we had uh, remembered at communion. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take it, divide it among you. I won't eat again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And Amanda did a great job of this, of, of saying, We do kids' talks here, but I really can't top this communion talk. Because Jesus himself explains his death through experience. He didn't gather them and say, Team, I'm going to die, which he actually did a few times and never got it. But he didn't say, Here's what's going to happen. He grabbed the bread and the wine of this Passover feast. And he linked it and said, this is my body, this is my blood. He acted out what was going to happen in front of them. Because the God who made us with all our senses has given us visible, tangible signs of his love, of this covenant of love for us. The given to you points to the cross. Bigger than the Passover event, Jesus links Isaiah 53, 12, poured out your life to death, bore the sins of many, intercession for transgressions. Jesus gave his body and blood for us. Judas was just given coins. God and humanity now have a covenant. Humanity messed up our end of it, of course. But God remains devoted and he doesn't because that is God's plan to uphold his side and uphold our side for us. It's always been God's plan to do this. Back in Jeremiah's day, we read, The days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. All of this, the threads are coming together in Jesus to show us the assurance of forgiveness, the inner working of the Spirit will transform us inside out through Jesus' death and resurrection. He can restore humanity where we fail. God hasn't given up yet or ever. And so we have this high-definition reminder. Take, do, remember until Jesus comes again. You could summarize this in that famous verse from John, chapter 3, verse 16, when John says, God loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The point 
is that Jesus' death brings about a new covenant and we benefit from his faithfulness. The self-giving love for others is the shape of the covenant Jesus puts down. But, he pauses, looks around, I'm sure, he says, team, the hand of him who's going to betray me is with me at this table. The Son of Man will go as it, go as it, go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. And they began to question among themselves, who would do that? A section starts with Judas, and it ends with Judas. But we see something new. Jesus always knew. Jesus always knew. In fact, when G- Judas gets picked as one of the twelve, I think it's John's Gospel, actually, has a little footnote and says, oh, this is the Judas that will betray Jesus. He knew already. He knew from the beginning who will betray him, but he never throws stones at him or, or says anything to him because it was God's plan to work through evil and the betrayal to redeem. Karl Barth, uh, I don't like to quote him very often, but he makes this really, because he's so hard to read, he makes this really great comment about Judas. He says, Judas was not for Jesus in the way that we must be for him if we're actually not to be against him. For Judas, Jesus was for sale. And because he did not hand himself over to Jesus, for his part, he was able to hand Jesus over to them. For Judas, Jesus was simply for sale, for 30 pieces of silver. It's a chaotic time to hear this. Last Supper, New Covenant in my blood, actually one of you is going to betray me, and the disciples start to spin out of control, questioning among themselves who this would be. Because the betrayer has been with them all along. The pointy part is that some people may hover and be like Judas. Walk away from Jesus after years, potentially. The problem isn't, of course, Jesus. <laughs> it's Judas's expectation of Jesus, rather. Because after all, humanity always looks for a God who will fit our desires, who we can control, who doesn't challenge us or our self-assessment, our narratives of life. We want a God who fits our categories, yet Jesus comes and says, I'm the God, will you fit my categories? Will you fit his? And the scene ends. And we'll explore next week the rest of Luke 22 about what happens next. But for today, let's trust in God's plan. Because it's a plan filled with grace and it's a plan that says, I know that Jesus knows. It's a plan that's filled with grace and it's a plan that says, I know that Jesus knows. Jesus says, as he does this, it's for you, for those who follow him, for those who come to him. This is a plan that has always been the one single unified story that God has been working to save the world through his death and resurrection. And that is a plan filled with grace. It's filled with grace because God made his first move towards us. We would never come unless we were called. It's a plan filled of grace to remember who we are and who Jesus has made us. You can't escape the fact that we're sinful. <laughs> when you have a new covenant made with the body and blood of Jesus like that. 
He lives the life that you and me should have lived. He dies the death that you and me deserve to die. And that is grace. It is a plan filled with grace for when we sin. We will deny Jesus. We will sell Jesus out for less than 30 pieces of silver. We will say we don't know him more than three times than what Peter did. We will run away like the disciples do. But that does not have to be the end of us. It is a plan filled with grace. Which means it is filled with forgiveness. Because it depends on the finished work of Jesus. Not how switched on you are one day. Or how wonderful you think you are. It is a plan of grace because it comes to us in our weakness. Because he is strong. It is a plan of grace because when we find evil and sin in us and when we see it in the world, we're reminded that Jesus is the one to restore humanity back to God where we're made for. We're reminded that in this new covenant, Jesus has set the trajectory towards a new heaven and earth that is going somewhere. A renewed heaven and earth, I should say. We're reminded it's a plan filled with grace because it looks forward as well to that new with Jesus, a future hope and a hope that comes from the future because he rose again. Imagine, if you will, you're in heaven. Whatever it's going to be like, let's, we know there's going to be a meal. And let's imagine you're there and, and you get ushered in to sit down at a table and there's a stage and, and there's, you know, just lights around and, you, and, and there's a waiter. He's got his little towel over you and he he comes up and says, welcome, glad you're here, really am. Um, can I get you anything? Can you, 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 no, no, I don't want to eat or drink, I want to, want, want to see Jesus. And he says, okay. And then a few minutes later, comes back and look, are you sure? I'm happy to serve you. What would you like? Can I get you one? No, no, I just want Jesus. Just go away, you know, in a very polite Christian voice because it's heaven. And he comes back again. And you grab his arm and say, I, I'm just not, and the towel falls off and you see a big hole here where the nails went in. And you realize the Son of Man came to serve and seek and save the lost. And that's the plan filled with grace. It's the character of God right there. And because of that, and this sounds so clunky, I know, it's a plan that says, I know that Jesus knows But he's, in, he's calm, he's in control. The whole story, Judas betrays him. Let's just plot along what we're doing. Luke writes to us with God's perspective in this passage. The disciples haven't got a clue. The Pharisees barely know what's going on. Judas hasn't, doesn't know what's going on, he just wants to betray him. Luke's writing so we can be sure that God knows what's happening. And I can know the God that knows that. And that's the plan of God right there. I don't have to be afraid or fearful. We can be sure because Jesus is sure. The plan that changes us by grace is also a plan that by grace says, God's got it. And we navigate life under this plan. We navigate life day by day knowing that Jesus already knows. Maybe you've, you've wondered, what's God's plan for my life? Uh, and may I ask you to think of it in a different way today? Maybe the better way is to say, have I been brought into God's already plan that he's already had in Jesus? Because that's God's plan for your life, you see? The new covenant. Are you, have, you, have you been already bought? How you bought? Have you been brought into this plan filled with grace upon grace? 
and then navigating life and whatever that looks like, knowing it's filled with grace, knowing that you can say, I know that Jesus knows. And I know the end. And between now and the not yet, it's filled with grace and Jesus knows. Because the big idea is for God to restore humanity to himself through a new covenant with Jesus' blood. And right now, we celebrate that. Right now, that can be true of you. The plan to live under the king who would die to uphold your end of the covenant, your end of the agreement to give you grace and hope. Is that the plan you trust? Is that the God of all grace you trust? And can you walk out of here today saying, I know that Jesus knows. As you drink coffee today and celebrate the week with each other and seeing one another, why not reflect? How will you celebrate God's love to you this week? Because of everything Jesus has done. Let's pray. Our great God, you came, second member of the Trinity, in the person of Jesus, to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. Yet that sits inside betrayal in the pattern of humanity's sin and rebelling from you since the very beginning. Yet it was your good plan to use this to restore us back to yourself through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Lord, that is a plan filled with grace and it's a plan that you've been working out and will continue to work out as we celebrate you for eternity and beyond. Lord, help us see that and trust that. And may you give us all the grace we need to navigate every day of this life, trusting in your good plan, already at work, through Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Saviour. Amen.